God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you could come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, Messy Conversations to join the conversation, and I hope to see you there. My guest today really needs no introduction. He is the author of The Shack, Crossroads, Eve, and his latest book, Lies We Believe About God. It is a dream come true to welcome him to this podcast today. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, William Paul Young. Hey, Jason, if anybody represents Messy Spirituality, that would be me. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in, brother. <laughs> Well, I am so excited to have you here today. It is such an honor to speak with you. Uh, I've heard you talk at length in other interviews about the shack being based on your own great sadness and how you found healing from shame. So many of the people that I talk to through this podcast have gone through a great sadness of their own. And some have let me know that they feel lost in that sadness. I've certainly felt that own dark that darkness in my own life. Why does that sadness get such a hold on us? And how do we find our way out of the darkness? Boy, such a great question. Um, I was on a, a, a message this morning with someone from Europe, actually, who was stuck in the middle of a great sadness and, and was rather terrified that the process of trying to work her way through it would never end. You know, everybody knows loss and everybody knows love. And when the two get entangled, things get very difficult. A lot of us were not raised in a, in a family system that was advantageous. I mean, there were great things about it, but there was also a lot of devastation and damage, and, and some of us more than others, obviously. And so for many of us, the sadness becomes almost like a survival skill. It, it becomes the, the prison that we call home. It becomes the place that we put our plaques up because we just think this is normal. And this is how we live. So that's, that's some of us. And some of us, we enter the great sadness when our facades are crushed. That is the avatar that we built that would, we hoped would win the approval and the affection of others fails to do that. And we get exposed in one way or the other. And we enter having to deal with our stuff, which allows us to feel the great sadness in ways that we may have mitigated before through something, whether it's through some addiction or just through learning how to shut down, all of that. And and so the, the great sadness has become something that, you know, I coined almost like a, a a person within the fictional story of the shack. And worldwide, people identify with it. Worldwide. 
it's the underlying brokenness of our humanity that we share in common. So I, I, it's, we just learn to hide it. That's, that's what we do as far as trying to find a way to exist inside of that brokenness. And so we, pre- we present something other than that, but it's an, it's, it's epidemic because it's just built into the brokenness of this planet. So how did you find your way out of that sadness? Well, I can look back and tell you, you know, that it was grace and the kindness of God. I always tell people grace plus desperation. And so, you know, I can look back and say, well, here, here I can see that I was on this journey from the time I was a child, trying to figure out how to work out of the great sadness, or at least cover it up so that it, it didn't just swallow me whole at any given point. And so I can look back and I can say, well, at this point, I needed to be exposed and all my crap needed to come to the surface because the unexposed is the unhealed. And this person intersected my life at this point and kept me alive. And this person at this point had kept me alive. And, and then therapy helped and learning how to, to have a conversation and let someone in, which for those of us whose trust has been broken as children, that becomes a really difficult thing. And especially if you compound it with uh, a, a God that you cannot fundamentally trust. You know, you learn to trust Jesus as best you can, but you're, you're always afraid of the God behind Jesus. And that's the way I grew up anyway, inside modern evangelical fundamentalism, which just increased the distance. And so I had to dismantle a whole bunch of lies, both about who I am as a human being, who God is as, as Trinity, and a confluence of all those things, being married to the right person, that is a person who wouldn't put up with my crap, who was a fiery, furious, powerful woman, who thankfully would not stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in me. So, you know, it's just this combination of things. And I think part of that, the part of the reason that is true is that every single person is an unbelievably complex, crafted creation, so magnificently crafted that there are no quick fixes or there's no formula for dealing with your great sadness. There are certain things that I can talk about that are incredibly helpful, but in terms of working our way out of it, but there's no formula as far as how to move through it What's going to affect you versus somebody else? You, you know this. You can put 10 children in front of the same abuse and 10 lives will go 10 totally different directions because of the uniqueness of, that, that, of each one of them. Well, the, the healing journey is exactly the same. You, you have 10 people who, you know, some people AA absolutely saved their lives, Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, it is a gift to humanity that I think originated in the heart of God. And so 12 steppers and, and that becomes a way that some folks have walked themselves out of the great sadness. And it's in the context of some things that are incredibly powerful, like learning to be a truth teller, you know, learning, learning that you have a voice and that you can speak it inside a community of people that are not going to run away from you. You know, things that, the quote unquote, the church should have known all along, but we needed something like 12 steppers to come along and teach us how to have community. I know that for me, uh, in my personal story, shame was almost built into my faith. I grew up believing in a God that I had to hide from. 
And if I had to hide a part of who I was from God, how much more would I hide it from all the people, like you said, that I wanted to be impressed with me? And then, you know, the call to ministry just amplified that. Life in the fishbowl is so hard. And we and we push that thing that we're afraid of being exposed down deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's so many layers to that onion that it could be so hard to unravel that. How far down did that shame go in your life? Was that something that was inbred in you from a childhood? Yes, absolutely. And whether it was, you know, um, the fact that my dad didn't have a capacity for being a dad and because of his own brokenness. But when you're a child, you don't know the brokenness of your parents. You, you just consider that they're the ones that are representing true and right and, and the good. And, and my dad was an abusive disciplinarian. So right from the very beginning, when, when, um, when he would, when he would, he, uh, the beatings were always prefaced by me trying to stop him by yelling the three words, I'll be good. You know, and, and here's the distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt is that you've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. You know, every beating, every time I yelled those words, I was reinforcing a lie that said that at the core of your being, the truth of who you are is that you're something wrong. And therefore, then religion comes along and gives you a whole bunch of ways to cover up the fact that something's wrong about you. And it gets even worse. I mean, we have in theology called imputed righteousness, which means that, you know, we know you're a piece of crap. And so what Jesus is going to do is that he's going to come and cover you up with his righteousness so that God the Father doesn't know that you're a piece of crap, that somehow, you know, Jesus can sneak you into heaven. And when 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 he looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. And so that's part of why religion then reinforces it. Uh, another element was sexual abuse that started for me before I was five in the tribal culture. And then at six, when I was sent to boarding school, it, it was part of the indoctrination of the older boys to the younger boys. And then they would come at night and molest the little boys. Oh, my goodness. And if there's anything that will drive shame into the core of your being, it's sexual abuse. It just, it takes years to work out the ramifications of that whisper that's in the core of your soul. So you develop all kinds of survival skills. And I would even say that for a lot of people who are in Christian professional service, you know, uh, ministry, that ministry is a survival skill. It's, it's a coping mechanism. It's a way of covering up the fact that they really think they're a piece of crap. And it, and it comes out because ministry will actually isolate them, which is one of the elements that exacerbates shame. Because shame always drives you away from relationship, uh, even relationship with yourself. And, um, and that's why you just can't look in a mirror. It's why so many people can't say, you know, I think you are good in a mirror. It's like a lie. Because shame is constantly telling you, you're not good. There is nothing good in you. What about that song? What a terrible song, right? It's a song to God. You are good. You are good. There is nothing good in me. Mm, yep. Come on. Talk about exacerbating shame and just piling it on. It's one thing. It's one thing to feel like a piece of crap with those who are supposed to love me, you know, my parents or whatever. And they did love me as best that they knew how. And, and bring in what they, what their own experience was. There's no question. But 
to then add a God who is love, who still thinks you're a piece of crap. And, you know, you're totally depraved, you're wicked, you're, you have a sin nature. Now we're in trouble. Because at that point, where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? Because you, you can't seem to get away from this God who, who knows that you're a piece of crap. And it's like, oh, so that's, that's what our definition of grace is, that God loves us in spite of this. You know, and it's like, great. So how does transformation happen? How do I change from being ontologically, big word that means just the truth of your being, being ontologically a piece of garbage? How do you get that to be something else? Well, religion says you just have to do the right stuff, you know, and all becomes about behavior. And suddenly it's the perfectionism that begins to drive my life. And obviously, especially since I've got such a broken history, I can't do perfectionism and don't know anybody who actually has. And, uh, but, but I, th I think that's, you know, the standard is to be perfect. And that little layer of perfectionism then covers up an ocean of shame and, and you're constantly being exposed. So you have to keep on the move and you have all these survival skills, like lying becomes a survival skill. Of course, you don't really lie. You just don't tell the whole truth or you shade it or, you know, and then you ask Jesus to forgive you and then you try again the next day, you know, but it all just compounds shame. Shame, shame is so at the core of human experience and it is such a delusion. It is so not true. I know that there was, there was a point in my life where it felt like once uh, people knew things that I was afraid for them to find out, once that exposure took place, there was this moment of relief. It was almost like, you know, uh, when Jonah gets swallowed by the whale, you think, oh, man, this is going to go really badly. But that ends up being the saving grace in the end. But it it feels it takes a long time between exposure and feeling worthy of love again. True. For so many of us. How long did it take you from the point of exposure to ever feeling like you could ever be loved for who you were? Golly. It's incremental. I, I wish there was extreme soul makeover, you know. Where... <laughs> <laughs> you would have to host that show. Yeah, really. <laughs> I'll send you to Disneyland and fix you by the time you get back. And uh, and so it's, you know, we're t like I said, we're too incredibly crafted for quick fixes. And, and so the journey toward self-acceptance and self-love and, and, and beginning to trust that you are truly made in the image and likeness of God, that that is, that is the truth about you, not what shame tells you. Um, that's an incremental journey. And the more help you get with it, I think the faster that journey happens. For me, uh, when exposure happened, which is I, I got caught in a three-month affair with one of my wife's best friends. And when that happened, all of my persona blew up. I didn't know at that point what was actually true about me. And that began this incremental movement toward discovering what is the truth of who I am. And, but it almost killed me in the process too. Like uh, in about the fourth month of intensive therapy with uh, a man who I pulled out of the yellow pages of all things and, and went and for the first time in my life asked somebody if they could help me. About four months into it, it got really, and he, he told me it was coming and, and I kind of believed him. And when it hit, I almost killed myself in, in, the, 
in those first few months. But that that movement toward beginning to dismantle my view of God, beginning to dismantle, you know, when when everything is is that you have built, that when the house of cards becomes obviously a house of cards and you lit the match that just burned it to the ground, all you got is ashes because it's the only thing that makes it through the fire. And it's a slow incremental build from there. And and it's moment by moment, day by day. And so it took me from it took me from 38 to 50. So basically 11 11 years really before I finally could say with a sense of inner assurance I'm I'm one of the healthiest people that I know. And I know the truth about who I am. It took him and I that long to heal, to reconcile. And but during in that journey there were people that I began to invite into my world, uh, beginning with Scott, the therapist. And, and uh, then I began inviting men, which, and, which was a h- huge step of risk and trust for me because men had been such violators in my life. And then slowly, incrementally, you know, I, I have a friend named Scott, different Scott than the therapist Scott. And, uh, but my friend Scott is the first man who said to me something my father should have said to me. And that was during these 11 years. And we were driving to Montana. And he says, you know, I just want you to know this, that I don't care how badly you mess up your life, I'm not leaving. That was one of those things that just uh, sort of tilted the cosmos on on its side for me or, or uprighted it or something. Yeah, my dad should have said that, but he didn't, he couldn't. He didn't have the capacity to say something like that. But, uh, you know, here I am in my 40s before somebody is able to tell me in a way that I could hear it. So by the time I'm 50, the year I turn 50 is the year I finally realized that, oh, my gosh, look, I'm the same person in every situation. That's never happened before. I was always playing to the audience, you know, and, and I'd, I'd grasp authenticity in bits and pieces. But, but the year I turned 50, I realized this has become my way of life. And it matches what I believe to be the truth of who I am, which is the definition of wholeness. Yeah. Wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. Mm, that's so good. And it's not based. Oh, it's great. I got that from Baxter Kruger, the <laughs> theologian. And, yeah. and it doesn't, it doesn't mean perfectionism. It doesn't mean that you're perfect in your behavior. I still get triggered. I still, you know, say stupid things sometimes when, when I get caught sideways. But, but let me tell you this. What used to take me six months to deal with takes me six hours. And I can recognize it. I'm much more aware of what's going on. And I will not stay in a lie. I just won't do it anymore because I know where it goes. And I know where those whispers originate. And I know how destructive they are. Plus, at the same time as I've come to a greater degree of wholeness and integration in my own life, you know, I'm the same person in every situation. I have no addictions. I have no secrets. I Joy has become a constant companion, which has subverted the great sadness. And I've become a child in my life for the first time, where I, I get to be present to what's actually happening right in front of me. I don't have to be scrambling to create some mythological control over some imagination based on fear or shame. So... It's, st- it's still an ongoing journey. There's no question. There are s- still times when the whisper comes up and I say something stupid and the whisper is immediately there going like, see, 
see, you are a fake, you are a piece of crap. And, but I know that voice now and I know where it comes from. And I know how to say, uh, you're such a liar. And, and I don't, I don't believe you. And I, I don't agree. And, and then that'll drive me back in the direction of relationships, which is the safest place as contrary as that seems to be. You know, when you're hiding stuff, it seems like somebody knowing you would be the worst thing ever. And then you find out when they know you, that they identify with you, you know, and, uh, God, that's a severe mercy. Eh? But you have to deal with the process, which is very, very, very painful. I would never want to go through those 11 years again. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I remember having this thought, you know, kind of in the midst of reemerging from my great, my own great sadness, that I always felt like people didn't love me for who I was. But then this voice came to me saying, you know, how could they? Exactly. I, I would never allow anybody to know me. I'm not sure I knew myself. Well, especially when you think you're a piece of crap, then, you know, right. what do you want them to know? <laughs> I mean, what are you inviting them to know? You're inviting them to know something that's not worth knowing. Mm-hmm. So what do you have left is just your presentation. Right. You know, and so you give that and you're not, you know, when I create a facade and an avatar or whatever, I, I'm not trying to be duplicitous. I'm actually hoping that if I can perform perfectly, that one day I might turn into the, that person. I might become a real human being by performing my way there. But that's the fallacy. You can't. And it's built on, it's built on a lie, which means you're worthless to begin with. The lie is that you're not enough. The lie is that, that you're, you're wicked, wretched piece of garbage. The truth is you're a child of God made in the image and likeness of God. That is true about you. It is true. It is true. It is true. It is true. And that's what began to destroy my addictions, right? Because when you find out that you're actually, that the core of your being, you are pure of heart and self-controlled, which are attributes of God, and I'm made in the image and likeness of God, that those things are true, suddenly the porn addiction gets absolutely destroyed. You know, a, a lot of us, relationship itself and the, and the risks of relationships will destroy that kind of addiction because a porn addiction is just an imagination of a relationship in which you're loved without any risk of actually having one. I tell people it's like bad theology. It's the imagination of a relationship without the risk of a real one. So, yeah, so why would they know you, especially when you have no clue about the truth of who you are because you think you're a piece of, you know, I don't know if you can say shit on the air or not. I say shit all the time. Yeah, go so, ahead. Go for so it. It's in the Bible. <laughs> okay, so Paul good. uses it. So I'm, I'm good. That's right. But, but you know, yeah. and I call it piece of shit theology that we grew up with, right? That that's the truth of your being. Yeah, well, if absolutely. that's the truth of your being, how are you going to get the way of your being to match it? You can't. All you can do is cover it up. And then there's this, there's this stench in your life and people with any kind of sense of crap detector, they'll pick it up because as a person thinks in their heart, so becomes the way of their being. If you think you're a piece of crap, you will, you will act like one and you'll let people treat you like one. And it's because it's a lie. It's based on a lie. So yeah, it's a journey coming to find out who you are, but that requires relationship, openness, authenticity, exposure, or truth telling, you know, all those things that those of us who hide in the, in the dark, we, 
we are terrified of. I remember reading The Shack in 2008 and all of my friends, I was a pastor in Alabama. Okay. So all of my friends <laughs> were upset that God was a black woman. I'm not sure if yeah. they were more offended that God was a woman or that God was black, but both were, you know, strikes against God in, in their understanding of the book. Or that God was good. Well, that was the thing that bothered me the most was I, I don't care that God's a black woman. It was God can't love me this much. Right. I mean, if God loves me that much, if God loves, you know, Mac that much in the book, if God loves, you know, Missy's murderer that much in the book, then we're all just going to get off scot-free in the end. And, you know, th these little religious alarms are going off in my head and the heresy alerts are happening. And, you know, the, the Baptist preacher circle, we had a lot of uh, folks to commiserate with in our displeasure of that book at that time. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the Papa you demonstrate in that book is exactly the God that I've come to know. Come on, brother. In the last 11 years. Yeah, me too. And, and in so many ways, Paul, I think that book saved my life. Mm. And the people that have been introduced into my life since then, like Brad Jerzak, who has have provided some real structure to a faith and a God like that, a God that's like Jesus— it just changes everything. So it does. I want to say I'm sorry to you for <laughs> talking bad about you and your book when it first came out. But I also want to say thank you so much for writing it, knowing that there were going to be ignorant people like me coming after you for it. And I'm so glad you did. No, I forgive you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I get, I get, emails from lots of people, and a lot of them are from my own people, who are the m most angry with me. And they say things like, you know, I'm terrified to actually take the risk that God is this good. And I'm thinking like, what have we done? You know, uh, George MacDonald has this unbelievably beautiful statement. George MacDonald is the guy that led C.S. Lewis into a sense of relationship with Jesus. And he says this, good souls many will one day be horrified at the things they now believe of God. They can make little progress in the knowledge of God while holding evil things true of him. And that's what religion has done to us. And the Christian religion, as much as any other religion, has hidden the goodness of God. We look at Jesus and we go like, yeah, but. And, and it's that piece that says, there still has to be justice. And that, and that peace comes from God because God is just. And it's like, ah, uh, somebody, you know, look at the evil and the destruction. We, you know, a lot of times we don't want to look at what we have done. We want justice done on somebody else, to quote Bruce Coburn. It's stunning to me now because I was, I was one of those self-righteous religious people covering up the fact that I thought I was a piece of crap, you know? That's the way that I was. And so it... I asked the Lord and I said, why didn't you let somebody else write this 30 years ago? It would have saved me a lot of time. And the answer I got was nobody else could have written this. And because it's, it comes right out of my history. And I think that's why the book has done this massive, phenomenal kind of thing in the world where it's crossed every kind of cultural and social and religious barrier on the planet because it's so human. I'm thrilled to be on the holy ground of your story. I'm grateful. I didn't write it thinking 
that anybody else but a few friends and specifically my family were ever going to read it. So there was no agenda to try to shock anybody. I was just trying to say to my kids, let me tell you about the God who actually showed up and healed my heart, not the God I grew up with, not Gandalf with a bad attitude, not not the distant omni-being behind the back of Jesus. You know, that when you look at Jesus, you are looking into the face of Trinity. There is no distinction in terms of character. There is distinction of person, but not character. And and this is a God you can trust. This is why trust became the center golden thread through my journey. It was learning how to trust. And that that'll be my journey forever, is this journey of, of expanding trust. Well, I certainly wasn't the only one back in those days who had uh, trouble with the book. I know that you got a lot of criticism. My, my mom did, yeah. Okay. I know you got a lot of criticism <laughs> from evangelicals, but time and time again, every time I've heard you refer to those critics, you call them your people. They are my people. And, and I have so much respect for that. How deep does that connection go for you? To the evangelical. Right to the, right to the core. Because that is the tradition that I come out of. You know, it, it would be why I, if I'm with Muslim friends and they would say, so are you a Christian? Uh, my response is my father was. And that's enough for them because all they're asking me is a cultural question. They're not asking me a belief question. We think they're asking a belief question, but it's not. And, and so my heritage is Christian. My tradition is Christian. And my people are modern evangelical fundamentalists, which are fundamentally the ones who are mad at what I've done and written and say, even though most of them have never read it, which is the truth. It's just the truth. And that's an observation, not a, not a value statement. And so the, the necessity of exposure is paramount. And I know my people. I know what they're afraid of. I know why what I am saying would scare them. I get that. But the last thing that I want in a world that has already 44,000 Christian denominations, I don't want to be part of more division. Division is not healing anything. And at some point, we've got to say, there's got to be a better way, which is, as Jerzak would say, would be the way of Jesus. And that better way is not divisive. It's inclusive. And that scares my people because they've got an identity based on exclusion. So even as a Christian, I, I tell people, you know, only be a Christian when it's helpful, because most of the time it's not helpful. And Christian is a religious title anymore. It doesn't mean what it meant when it was first, you know, a snide remark against those little Jesuses that were running around. And so now it's an identification with a religious system that Jesus did not found and is not the originator of. So, you know, to be a follower of Jesus, a lover of Jesus, someone who trusts Jesus, those are all wetter, uh, way better ways to, to talk about my connection. But at the same time, I live in a world where the language of Christianity is predominant inside my subculture of modern evangelicals. So, I have no problem using the language of, of religious Christianity to see if there is a way that I can build a bridge for my people to walk out of the prisons that they find themselves in, which are primarily shame and fear. And they're afraid. I mean, they're caught by their own religion in a double bind. They can't take the risk of trusting God because that, that trust 
might end them up in hell. I mean, it's as crazy as it sounds. That's kind of the intellectual gyrations that that they're stuck inside of. And I know it. I know it because I've been there, grew up in it, and I still identify myself as part of that stream. And I got great things out of it too. Don't get me wrong. They taught me how to think. They taught me how to to work theology, to, you know, I went to Bible school and didn't graduate seminary, ran out of money, but I did go to seminary. And they were very conservative institutions, but I gained a lot from being inside of those uh, educational environments. Had to unlearn a bunch, but uh, again, that's where the voices of other people came into my world and helped dislodge my intellectual aggression or the fact that that's where I went to hide. It's the only thing that I thought I could trust was my mind. Everything else was broken anyway. And here I am, you know, believing in a doctrine of of depravity that had to come from a mind that was depraved. I mean, talk talk about a double bind. Yes, some of my friends and I were talking this weekend about how it, it feels like we we built fear. Fear is such a part of our faith from the very beginning when we use hell as the evangelistic tool. We build the faith in from the very start. It's the ground floor of our faith. And so everything that fear touches, you know, falls apart in the end. And so um, it just feels like we've built this whole thing around fear rather than love. And maybe that's why we've gotten the results we've gotten. And then we run into a verse like, there is no fear in love. And we go like, well, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> I mean, if we're honest about it, right? everything about our our a relationship with God has has largely been embedded inside of a fear basis. You know, we have a bigger relationship to hell than we ever had to Jesus. Absolutely. Or to the goodness of God. And and it's it's there is no fear in love. The one who fears is not perfected in love. You know, that it just means that to the degree that fear exists in your life to that to that degree you don't know how much you're loved yet. And it's not an accusation. It's, it's an exposing observation. You know, perfect love casts out fear, period. There is no fear in love, period. And it's like, oh, so that becomes a marker. If there is a sense of fear in terms of my relationship with God, then I don't know yet how much I'm, I'm loved. And then the spillover of that is that, well, does God love everybody like that? Or, you know, did, did I earn something or... Did I do something right? Was I, did I happen to be born at the right century, at the right time? Now you've got your can of worms opened up in terms of my people. That's because you know their gospel was inclusive. It was exclusive. That is, that it applies to us, but we did the magic. You know, we're part of the right religious framework. Do you still feel connected to the institutional church at this point in your life? Sure, um, I'm in it, but I'm not of it. So is that connected? Yeah, I'm in it. I'm in it a lot, actually. I get invited to be in it probably more than anybody I know, but I'm not of it. And that's the thing about systems in general. And that's why the kingdom of God is within you. It's not out there, right? We want to make it out there, but it's not out there. It's actually in you and it spills from the inside out. Whereas the systems of this world, and that includes every religious system. This is why we've moved from understanding the church as a relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is your definition of church. And we've moved that to an institutional system, something on the outside. 
which is truly not the church. That, that system is not. That's the relationships within it may be a really beautiful expression of the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the structure itself is not. So we live in a world full of systems because that's what human beings do when, the, when, they, need, when they need to figure out how to control. So here we are in a world full of systems. How do we, how do we manage? Well, we're in them, but we're not of them. They're not our origin. They're not our source. They don't define truth. They don't define love. They don't define any of that. And frankly, if what I'm learning does not increase my capacity to love, then I'm just playing another game. So I'm not, going, I'm not an anarchist. It's not like, hey, let's just go destroy all the systems of the planet. What? If you do that, up comes another one, you know? So there's no solution there. But let's not Let's not tie our identity to a system, not to a nation, not to a culture, not to our color, not to, because those things are not identities. They're expressions of the character and nature of God. And we need all of these human expressions, but systems, as good as they're intended, are, are an incarnation of human desire of one sort or another. And that's a mix of good and evil. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they're always a mix. And you've got to realize they're a mix. And so don't rely on a system to do for you what it is incapable of doing. And that is loving. Because it can't. You know, you may love your job, but your job does not love you. I'm just saying. Right? And so don't look to a system to give you identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, or love. All of those things originate in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then are expressed in terms of tangible relationships that we find ourselves in, and starting with our families, starting with our spouse, with the person who's in front of us, with our child, with our grandchild. After you wrote The Shack and Crossroads and Eve, what led you to make the transition from writing a novel to a nonfiction book like The Lies We Believe About God? Well, Lies is full of stories, so I'm a kind of a story person anyway, and I love story. I like fiction better as uh, that I see fiction and nonfiction is that fiction, if it's done well, I think, that if it's done adequately, it actually creates more space than it uses. There's an inherent trust for the reader to hear for themselves. And so you, you craft a space that someone can walk into, but they'll hear for themselves. If you put an agenda inside of fiction, then all of a sudden you don't trust the person who's listening and, and you turn art into propaganda. Nonfiction has a different uh, goal. If the goal of nonfiction is to kind of reduce space or to help you change the space that you find yourself in so that you can manage it better or something. So you, it's a totally different writing experience. The, the Lies book started as tweets that I was doing. I was, you know, on Twitter, I was doing these little tweets called words you'll never hear God say, because I grew up where you always heard, this is what the word of God is. You know, this is what God says. And, and I'm like, so what wouldn't God say? And by looking at negative space in art, sometimes you see the positive space with greater clarity. And so I started going like, so what would, what would God not say? And those were the basis for the lies. You know, it's interesting. I'm sitting there talking to Brad Jerzak and Baxter Kruger about this. And I said, I'm working on this book called, the publisher is saying, we should call this lies we believe about God. 
how many lies do you think we can come up with that we believe about God? In about five minutes, we had 150 of them. And it's like, oh my gosh, look at this. So I, I pooled 28 of them. And inside story, there's an interrelatedness between them all. And, but at the core of it is the issue of the goodness of God or the character and nature of God. And lies has, has been doing a similar thing, not on the scale that the shack did, but it has allowed people to actually, in language that's accessible to them, interact with assumptions that they have made, but also to expose the fact that they, the Holy Spirit has already been teaching them. Because I think that's who the teacher is and in every single human being's life. And that the Holy Spirit has been teaching them. And so a lot of lies is affirmation. That is like, you know, you're not nuts. There, there is a God who is good. You do have a choice after you die. Ha! You know, which is one of those tweets that I did that just kind of upset the cart. It was like, the tweet was, I'm sorry, this words you'll never hear God say, I'm sorry you died. There's nothing I can do for you now. Death wins. So I turned that into the lie that death is bigger than life. And uh, so that's kind of where that came from. And, and you know, what's funny is my, the people who are upset with me, especially the, you know, the intelligentsia, they, they, their big thing was, finally, he's not hiding behind fiction. See, he's right out there. And which is true, but I, you know, fiction was never hiding anyway. It was just a, a, a different way of creating the landscape. Well, it feels like you're reaching people with a nonfiction book that maybe would not have uh, read the fiction work. You know, I mean, I love The Shack, but I don't read a lot of fiction. Uh, I, I think I probably gave away 50 copies of The Shack, but I don't know that I've read a fiction book <laughs> since you wrote Crossroads. So, yeah, well, see, here's the thing. I, I spoke at the National Academy of Religion, which is like, you know, 2000 very smart people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have two or three PhDs. And so I was presenting there, but I was listening to a presentation that one of their, one of their peers was giving and he berated them for the fact that they would not read fiction. And he's saying, you have to understand that story is the basis of everything. You know, that Jesus uses parables all the time, but not just that, the whole history of Israel, especially from a Jewish perspective, is a compilation of stories that have meaning. And so it, it's, it's so interesting to me how locked in the West we are um, since the Enlightenment and post-enlightenment rationalism, how much we trust our brains to be the center of everything. And then we wonder why our relationships are so scattered and dismantled, you know, because especially I think men have learned to hide in their minds. This is why porn is such a huge issue also with women, but predominantly with men, because it doesn't allow them to simply stay in their, that's the back's the backhanded grace, if there is any, of porn is that it, it penetrates into this ideological idolatry of intellectuality and says, you're not just a brain and you cannot function just as a mind. And you're, you're much, much more than that. But you're not going to be transformed until your mind gets blown. Can we talk about a few of the specific lies you mentioned in the book? Would that be okay? Sure. God is in control. Ooh, boy. Each one of these lies, I mean, we could spend a podcast on, no doubt about it. So, <laughs> sure. so a lot of us grew up, and, and, and we have a sense of if we define control, we would end up with deterministic fatalism. 
it would be the same thing as karma. You put in one thing, you're going to get out a result. And so God is in control. That means that everything that has happened is ordained. And we use that language. And so we say horrible and terrible things when somebody has experienced a tragedy. We say things like, God is now going to use this situation to be a witness and a testimony. And, or this was ordained by God. And, and we're talking about the loss of a child or the abduction of a child or a terrible and horrific accident or like a friend of mine who's one of her best friends was a stuntman and did a stunt on camera worldwide. He was thinking about what am I going to say as a believer to the audiences when the stunt is done, because he's done it hundreds of times. But he was thinking about that instead of focusing on the stunt and he missed it. And he was instantly transformed into a quadriplegic because the last truck that he was supposed to be leaping over that was being driven toward him was driven by his dad. And in the, in the sequence of trucks, he hit the last one, which was the one his dad was driving and instantly became a quadriplegic. And well-meaning, good-intentioned Christians would say to the family and his mom particularly, you know, this is part of God's plan. And it's like, are you serious? Because if, if you say that, then all of a sudden, you know, there is, a, there is a problem. There's a problem with the nature and character of God. There's a problem with, then, then God is the originator of evil. And if God is the originator of evil, where am I going to run? So that chapter begins to dismantle what I think is a fundamental lie. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is omniscient. Yes, God, all of those things. Yes. But as soon as God creates Adam, you now have a being who can say no to love. And no longer is God in that, in any sense, or never was, but is not in a sense fatalistic determinism. There is relationship. And, and so, anyway, I mean, like I said, we could talk for an hour about this. Absolutely. Next lie. You need to get saved. Ooh. So, I mean, that, that really raises the hackles of some of my people. And, and, and in a way, it is true. I mean, that is that we are in a process of transformation that is a process of coming to wholeness. So that would be technically uh, being saved. But what people mean in my world, my people mean by that, is that you have to do something magical. That is, you have to say the sinner's prayer, or you have to do something, and it's that action that gets you saved. In other words, Jesus did everything that he could do, but it all depends still on you. And how that's not work salvation, I have no idea. If anybody wants to read a fantastic a, a little thing, if you go on my website under wmpauliyoung.com and you go to the resource tab, there's a bunch of resources that I think are very helpful. And one of them is an article by Brad Jerzak on the three types of salvation. And that's where he addresses the same question in, a, I think, a much better way than I did. But the statement of the early church is that what Jesus did, he assumes all of us. All of us are created and we live and move and have our being in him. And when he dies, we all die. When he rose, we all rose. And when he ascends, we all ascend. And that's, that is the act of salvation, but now we've got to work it out. And we work it out in union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the way that my people talked about it was that it was sort of like Jesus, you know, God built the bridge over to our brokenness, and then Jesus takes the ticket at the bridge. And so you can either stay 
in lost darkness and sin and eventually in hell, or you can do the magic and get across the bridge. And that's the way it was presented. So when they said, you need to get saved, that's what they meant. And that's the, that is a lie as far as I'm concerned. And so I tack it in that chapter. Uh, the next lie, really the last one that I wanted to talk with you about today for this broadcast, the cross was God's idea. Mm. And see, you can see how these begin to be interrelated, because if you make the cross God's idea, then you make you make God the originator of a disastrous, destructive, torture device whose only design is to keep a person in as much pain and suffering before forcing their breath from them. That's, that's what we think of in terms of a, what a cross is. And if God originates the cross, then God is a, a torture device maker. And, and it's like, oh, well, who are you going to run to? You know, you're going to run to the, the same torture maker? You know, is that, is that how you see God as a judge? And so that becomes a really critical issue. Is the cross God's idea? And the answer is no. God doesn't create crosses, but God knows going into a creation in which creation will say no to love, that this symbol will become the iconic symbol of their delusion of separation or death. You can call it death or the delusion of separation. But, but this thing will hang suspended across all of the cosmos, the created cosmos, as man's human beings, a great statement of self-determined separation, which is another lie. But, but what's God to do? What's God to do, seeing that his beautiful creation is on the road to ruin and about to lapse into non-being? That's a quote from Athanasius in 321 AD. What was God being good to do? And, and how do you destroy this delusion of separation? Well, this is a God who doesn't run from suffering, runs toward it. Although there was no suffering within the being of God prior to us bringing it to the table. And so God runs toward it. And by submitting to the cross, not only destroys the delusion and the power of it, but then transforms it into an icon and a monument of grace that is precious to us that we look to the cross, a torture device that we crafted and we, we put life on and killed him. We did that. And then we had the audacity to blame God the Father for it. That's Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. And Isaiah's going like, you've lost your minds. And that's the point that God had to go into the place where we'd lost our minds, go into the delusion of separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the middle of my delusion becomes the place of trust in a love that he can't feel or sense or hear in that space because he's entered into our delusion of separation. And yet he trusts into your hands, I commit my spirit. And Paul says, you want to know where, G where God the Father was when Jesus was on the cross, for God was in Christ recon and reconciled, to use Martin Luther's translation, and reconciled the cosmos to himself, not counting their sins against them. What do you do with that verse? Yeah.
so many people on this uh, spiritual evolution, this deconstruction journey that I speak with, they they manage to escape the mindset of eternal conscious torment or penal substitutionary atonement, but they don't know what to do with Jesus in the aftermath. Paul, what role does Jesus play in your faith today? Yeah, absolutely central. I mean, there everything hinges upon the person, the incarnation, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And at that point, I'm as orthodox as you can get, driving my sense of the significance and reality all the way back into the early church. Um, because if uh, what a lot of people have done, they've walked away from Jesus because Jesus was identified with the religious system that they grew up in. And, and they don't know how to, to throw out the bathwater without throwing out the baby, you know, especially at Christmas. And, um, and so, um, Jesus is the creator. Jesus, so salvation or the gospel, to use Baxter's line, is not that you can receive Jesus into your life. It is that Jesus has received you into his life, into his anointing in the Holy Spirit, into his relationship with the Father. And, and you've been included in that since the time of the beginning, to, to quote Colossians 1 or Ephesians 1. And so everything hinges upon the person of Jesus and who this Jesus is. And this is why the only place that I've landed that gives me the assurance, the unearthly assurance of the trustworthiness of all of this is the presentation of God in the person of Jesus. And so it's like, no, no, no. Everything drives back to Jesus. So in terms of my, my faith and where I stand, Apart from Jesus, there's nothing. But I think we've had such a low view of Jesus and a low view of humanity that he's been easy to shuck off with all the other religious bullshit that a lot of us grew up with. And it's like, no, you don't, you don't understand who this is. And that's the journey that we're on. Because in Jesus, I, on, I not only understand the character and nature of, of the transcendent divine of love, I also begin to get a glimpse of what it means to actually be a human being and the truth of who I am. Friends, I'm going to link to each of Paul's books, his website, and social media in the show notes. Paul, this conversation has been such a gift. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks for your work, and most importantly, for your transparency, your compassion, and just for being who you are. What are you working on right now? What can we expect next from you? Oh, thanks, Jason. I'm honored to be with you. And you know, my whole life has led up to this conversation. So why would I want to be anywhere else? That's exactly <laughs> how I feel today. I promise you that. <laughs> uh, so um, I'm working on The Art of Living in One Day's Grace, which is a nonfiction about how do you live like this, you know? And it's wrapped up in just living in the grace of one day at a time. You know, the, the present tense God. I'm also working on another nonfiction of ontology. It's, it's this whole thing about the way of your being matching the truth of your being. So what is the truth of your being? And which is something that I've been presenting lately that has just been like cracking open doors in ways that I haven't seen almost anything do. So that's cool. And then I'm also working on a fiction which is the sequel for The Shack, oh, which I wow. never thought I'd write. But over the last three years, I've become friends with a bunch of guys on death row in Tennessee. And they're helping me craft a storyline that will allow me to carry Mackenzie's journey forward from the end of The Shack to, to who knows what we'll see. Incredible. Well, I can't wait for that. Any idea on a time frame for that? 
I'm hoping to have all three of those projects at least in full manuscript form by the end of next year. And so I'm working on all three of them at the same time, you know, so. 2020 is going to be a busy year for you. It's a year of hindsight. Yeah. Because hindsight is always twenty twenty. That's right. Yeah. Hey, uh, your buddy Brad Jerzak, when he was on a couple of months ago, he mentioned a potential collaboration for the two of you. We did it. Any progress on that? You yeah. did it. Yeah. And so oh. it's at uh, it's now in an editing process. It's a little novella. It's only I'd be a hundred pages or something like that. But it's called the Pastor, and it just works through the process of transformation when when we come from a very broken place, but have hidden it inside of the avatar of ministry, for example. So he and I have been working on that. And that's it's a very cool little piece. Well, I th- it'll find its own place. I can't wait for that. I'm so excited. Uh, Paul, again, it's been such an honor to speak with you. Before we go, let me ask you one final question. I hear from so many people migrating that spiritual evolution. They feel like they've been rejected by people who they thought would always love them. Hmm. They feel abandoned, alone, and often hopeless. I can only imagine how many of those people you must hear from on a regular basis. What do you say to someone like that who is just struggling to hang on to some semblance of faith while letting go of what may have been some toxic beliefs in the past? Wow. Great question and and multi-layered. I mean, again, we could spend a podcast talking about just that. The, the first thing that I want to say is that you can hear the Holy Spirit for yourself. And sometimes these spaces of where you're not connected to the system anymore, they feel like abandonment, but they're essential for freedom. And so don't discount them. I mean, take advantage of the space. Some of us were so damaged by the Bible that we had to lay it down. I did for like 15 years at one point because I I couldn't read it without getting triggered. And some of us can't walk into you know, a a music service with a community of people of faith without getting triggered. And, and some of us can't listen to stuff without getting triggered. It's okay. It's normal. And you know what? We, we get disappointed because we've created expectations. If you, if you, if you learn to live without expectations, everything becomes a gift. And, and we expected better from the institutional religious system. Well, one, it's a system and, and it can't respond that way. Two, everybody that's in it is stuck in it in one way or the other. And they're afraid that their sense of identity will be disrupted by your movement and your change. And so you become sort of a target in that sense. Again, if what you're learning does not increase your capacity to love, even those who have turned away their faces from you, then you're playing another mind game. This is not real. The, the last thing I would say is learn to just stay inside today's grace. Don't be a future tripper. Don't create imaginations about what this is going to look like down the road because you don't have any control and you're designed to live only in response to what's happening in front of you, not to the myriad of mythical, mythical things that are out there that are, that are yelling for attention and will distract you from the person who is actually in front of you, whether it's in the mirror or whether it's the child or your spouse or the neighborhood grocer or the garbage collector or whoever. Learn and choose to live inside the grace of just one day at a time because that's where trust actually lives. That's where God lives with you. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Paul. I love you, brother. I'm so grateful for you. I love you too. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.